Welcome to the season finale of the Maharat cast. My guest this episode is none other than the woman, the legend, the OG Rabba, Rabba Sar Hurwitz herself. For those of you who don't know her, Rabba Sarah Hurwitz is the co-founder and president of Yeshivat Maharat, the first institution to ordain Orthodox women as clergy. She also serves on the rabbinic staff at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale. Rabba Sarah completed Drisha's intensive Scholar Circle program, training women to become scholars, educators, and community leaders. After five years of further study, she was ordained under the auspices of Rabbi Avi Weiss by Rabbi Weiss and Rabbi Daniel Sperber. In 2013, Rabasar was awarded the Hadassah Foundation Bernice S. Tannenbaum Prize. And in 2014, she was awarded the Myrtle Wreath Award from the Southern New Jersey region of Hadassah. In 2016, she was the recipient of the Trailblazer Award at the UJA Federation of New York. She was named as one of the Jewish Week's 36 Under 36, the Forward's 50 Most Influential Jewish Leaders, and Newsweek's 50 Most Influential Rabbis. In 2017, Rabba Sara was chosen to be a member of the inaugural class of Wexner Foundation Field Fellows. Rabba Sara lives in Riverdale with her awesome husband and four sons. While every episode of this season has been exciting for me to record, recording this episode with Rabba Sara was hands down the most exciting. I wanted to call this episode Rabba Sara Unplugged. The goal of this season has been to show our listeners the person behind the leaders and this was especially important to me in this episode with Rabba Sara. I've said this before to her and about her, but it's very rare in life that one meets their role model and the role model exceeds their expectations. Rabba Sara is one of those role models that the more you get to know, the more you realize how genuine and real her leadership and love of Torah and the Jewish people is. Rabasara is one of those rare leaders that the more you get to know her and the more you get to know about her, the more impressive and inspirational she is. Beside for being a tremendous educator and leader, she is just a spectacular human being. And I'm so excited to be able to show you all just a small part of that today. So in the spirit of keeping things equal, I'm going to start by asking the same question I ask every guest. Tell me about your journey to the yeshiva. Or in this case, tell me about your journey to founding the yeshiva. I never had a, I never had that aha moment where I woke up one day and said I want to be an Orthodox rabbi because there was simply no role model for Orthodox female rabbis. But I love Judaism. I love shul. I love being part of community. And after I graduated from college, I realized that I wanted to also spend some time learning immersed in Torah. So I went to Drisha for three years. And when I graduated from Drisha, I started working at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale just as a intern with Rabbi Weiss. And after being there for a year, we both started dreaming about what it would look like to be a full member of the clergy team. We knew I'd have to go back to learning and to, to feel like an authority on text. So I did that for five more years. And in March of 2009, I had what we called a conferral ceremony where I received ordination, I received smicha. And at that event, people came to me and said, where do I sign up? How do I do this? And on the very next day, I think there is a recording of this in an interview. I said, I want to create a credential pathway for other women to pursue this dream so that each and every one of us who are 
passionate about serving the Jewish community in a religious context don't have to figure out how to do it ourselves. There could be an institution and a network of people to support us working towards so many young women's dreams of being rabbinic leaders. Amazing. So I remember when I was in Stern, you spoke, and I remember being really surprised because I think my kind of judgment and assumption would be that the person or the woman who's like the first to do something has this kind of, I don't want to say outgoing because you're outgoing, but has this sort of like loud, big presence that's like super opinionated. And, you know, like, I think we can all just think of like that woman we would expect to be like the first because, you know, they like break down barriers because they kick it down. (laughs) Um, And I was so surprised at your like your grace and how, and maybe, you know, now it's like, now knowing it's like a Rabbi Weiss kind of leadership, like a, 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 a quieter leadership, you know, yelling is second best to being right. But, um, people do say that to me all the time and I don't really know what to make of it. Cause I am just me. So for example, you just talked about the first time we met at Stern and what came into my head is I remember traveling to to that event and I was so nervous. (laughs) I remember in the cab ride down, um, I don't know why I was taking a cab, but I I was just like studying all my sources again and preparing again and again and again in my head. Um, And I I guess for me, I I just don't take it for granted. Like I don't don't take um, the fact that I'm here as a, a leader as a foregone conclusion and I think because there was so much work that I personally did and so much um, that others did to help me get here I I really arrive here with a a lot of, of gratitude. I didn't appreciate it the first time I saw it at Stern and then I started in Maharat and back then I watched Rabasar grow as the dean of a new institution running in and out of the building hustling to fundraise for us teaching all over the world making sure we all had internships and job opportunities. But it was really once I started working with her at the Bayit at the Hebrew Institute of Riverdale as a colleague that I got to see her and understand just how much calm and poise and even keeledness she brings to her work and her life, and frankly, to the lives of everyone around her. Something I've come to realize from watching her over time, looking back at that first time I saw her and watching her teach for many years since, is that she has this awesome attitude where she just shows up and teaches and that's it. She's not there to prove anything to anyone. She's not there to stand in the room and defend her existence as female clergy. She calmly walks in as who she is and teaches. Over the years, I've heard her talk about the importance of doing the work, and I see it just in how she carries herself and engages with the rest of the world around her. It's not just something she says, it's how she lives. If you think back early in your life and throughout the years, have you always been this calm and had this grounding energy? So before I answer about what my earliest memories about being calm and grounded, I, I, I want to say that I feel like it's important to put out there in reference to something you said before, that there's certain t- things about myself that I hold onto and feel very confident about. It's not that I am confident in all that I do, but I chose 
Orthodox Judaism. I grew up in South Africa, and so being Orthodox was what South Africans did. But I took a journey from a young age to be part of the Orthodox community as a very conscious choice. And so um, if other people accuse me of not being religious or Orthodox, it completely rolls off my back because I know who I am and I know what my identity is. And the second piece is that I have a generally pretty good relationship with God in a way that, you know, many of us have relationships that evolve and I'm sure we, we struggle and I am a davener, I daven every day, but I, um, I feel like God is on my team on this and I, it's hard for me to imagine that there's anything that I'm doing that is against our tradition or against what God would want. And I think it's those two values that I hold in my center um, that allows me to, to walk with confidence in the way that I do. Because it doesn't feel to me like I personally am in the wrong space, in the wrong time, doing the wrong thing without a divine presence supporting me. But I also want to go back and go and answer your question about earliest memories. <laughs> uh, my parents call me a fence sitter. Uh, I think that I I just always like if they were having an argument and they asked who's right, I always found a way to to see the value in what both of them were saying, and I I just I think that that was a that's like an internal strength that I have that has helped me um, see all sides of an issue and to find points of collaboration and synergy. I remember my, uh, I was always part of a triangle when I was little, you know, those friend triangles where you were like in threes rather than fours. And so I feel like the beginnings of my life was always trying to navigate like how to be the third and to, and to hold hold the, the triad together as opposed to, to uh, um, you know, what happens when you're a young girl and, and people are, are sort of fighting. Um, but I, I guess also for me, like the, the reason why I, I come to this with a lot of, I don't know, just genuine love is that my first introduction to Judaism is through my aunt and Aunt Judy, who I think you got to meet, Rami. Um, who was at my ordination, my conferral ceremony, and also has been at uh, some of the smicha ceremonies, is a great supporter of me personally, is my earliest interaction with religious Orthodox Judaism. Um, she was the only member of my family growing up that was religious. And she comes to Judaism not through the head, but through the heart. She just has a lot of joy and love and I think that that's what I got bitten um, from when I was little. And I think that's how I imagined my world to be. Uh, one that wasn't sort of like fighting to be Orthodox and Jewish, but just coming, coming to it with a, a lot of like embrace, like Aunt Judy does. Do you think it's a coincidence, now that you said that coming to Judaism with love versus fear, do you think that people who come to Judaism with love in kind of like a close relationship with God are more religiously resilient than those who come at it from a place of fear or obligation? I think it's also about choice, right? At a certain point, you, it's, I think it's good to make a conscious choice that this is the world and the life you want to live in. I, uh, 
my parents always tell me that that I have a rebellious streak. What was my rebellious streak? I became religious. But it was something I worked so hard for and I worked so hard at. And I remember once like chafing against that. My parents like didn't mind if I chose to do that, but they said to me, it doesn't align with your choices of being religious. And what they were essentially saying to me is you could, you could choose not to be religious or you could make the choice to be religious. But if you're choosing to do that, then just go for it rather than, than um, chafing against it. At what point did you think that leadership was an option? I also realized that I completely took for granted the story of you working at HIR and going for that walk with Ravavi. How did you even meet Ravavi? So I think not everybody who meets me sees me as a leader. (laughs) And I think Rabbi Weiss is one of those people. And um, I think it's true. I I do maybe come across initially quiet. And um, I I met Rabbi Weiss for the first time when, there's actually a few times. The first time I actually met him was when I was living in Florida in high school. And he was brought over to talk about Jonathan Pollard and free Jonathan Pollard. This is like in you know, 1992. Um, and, and I was totally taken by, by, I don't know, his whole affect. But I think the, the next time I really interacted with him is when I was in Drisha. I was frustrated that at Drisha, the emphasis was only on learning and there wasn't an avenue, an avenue to um, help us imagine what kind of careers we might have after we finish all this learning. And there wasn't like a leadership training segment of our studies. And so I started something and, and I think that's been my attitude. If something isn't there, try to, to create it. Um, and so I wrote a proposal and I met with the, the administration and then I, I planned it. And one of the events that I did was a panel with Rabbi Silber, Rabbi Weiss and Blue Greenberg in which they spoke about the future of women in Orthodox Judaism. And Rabbi Weiss said in that panel, in five years from now, women will be rabbis. And I was like, that sounds good. I think I could do that. It was a little more than five years. Um, but I think that, that the, we, we didn't really know each other so well at that gathering. And I also had, uh, I, I applied to Tarat Miriam, which was the female arm of, of the Marat program that he founded with Rabbi Berman many years ago. And this is in 1999 or 2000. I was invited, I was applying for the program and I was in Israel for the summer running a, a, a leadership training group for college students. And he tracked me down. This is before cell phones. He tracked me down in Israel to say, um, you know, hi, I'm Rabbi Weiss. I just want to know, are you committed to, like, do you see yourself as a leader? Are you committed to leadership? And I had to say, yes, um, absolutely. This is something that I I see myself doing. But I had to convince him, (laughs) meaning in my initial interview, I guess that didn't come across. And so he followed up to make sure that that I had a leadership quality that that he was looking for. But I think that that I even before that, like in high school, I went to public high school. There was always, I guess, the major theme is when something didn't sit right, I would just do something about it. So um, graduation was on Friday night, and I went to a public high school where there was five hundred over five hundred students graduating, and I was at most of the time, the only Orthodox 
person in that high school. There were other, it was a lot of Jews, but not religious folk. There was maybe two or three others in other grades. And I really, I, it just wasn't fair. It wasn't fair that I wasn't going to be able to go to my high school graduation. And so we negotiated and they moved back the time of graduation just by a few hours so that I could be present and home in time right at the beginning of Shabbat, which is what I did. This episode is sponsored by Hadassah. Hadassah, the Women's Zionist Organization of America, is the largest Jewish women's organization in the United States. With nearly 300,000 members, associates, and supporters, Hadassah brings women together to effect change and advocate on such critical issues as ensuring the security of Israel, combating anti-Semitism, and promoting women's health. Through the Hadassah Medical Organization's two hospitals in Jerusalem, Hadassah delivers exemplary patient care to over a million people every year and supports world-renowned medical research. Hadassah Medical Organization serves without regard to race, religion, or nationality and earned a Nobel Peace Prize nomination in 2005 for Building Bridges to Peace. Rabasar is talking about the balance between patience and standing up against something that isn't right. There are people who say women getting smicha is too far, too fast. I wanted to know, how does she draw the line of being patient, but also knowing when to push and make a change? I have fire in my belly that generally answers that question for me. And it's a certain intuition of, I've had enough waiting and this is time for action. I look back on the decision to start Maharat. I could have waited and I could have waited for a male institution to start accepting women. And maybe it would have happened if I'd pushed that avenue um, 10 years, 20 years after I founded Maharat. Um, But I guess it was a realization that if I didn't do it, nobody else was going to do it for me. And, and there's an, an intuition that says the time is now. <laughs> I, I don't want to. I don't want to wait. Um, and I think that's born out of like a deep desire to fulfill a dream and a mission that I felt like was inside of me. Certainly at the beginning, there was not to say that there wasn't anger and frustration because there was, of course, moments of anger and frustration for why is it that women can't be. Uh, accepted in rabbinic roles. But for me, I think it was born out of a desire to, to give back to a community that I so wanted to be part of. And also knowing that this is my community and I'm a part of it. You know, I'm, I'm already in the family. So you telling me that I'm outside of the family is, is not useful because I, you know, if you're born into the family, you just are. Yeah. So you said like it's it's not always so easy. So I wanna I wanna like ask specifically when you changed your title from Maharat to Rabbah that caused like a big kind of storm in the community, um, and I'm sure it was incredibly difficult on like a million levels. Um, how do you find it in you to stay calm and patient and move forward when? It's when it's not just difficult, but it's difficult coming at you. I think knowing I belong is a theme that I'm noticing coming up a lot. 
And it's also about a having a vision for where I'm going. And so in that walk that you referenced before where Rabbi Weiss and I started dreaming about what it would take to be a a member of the rabbinic team. There was a lot I didn't know. I didn't know if I'd be accepted. I didn't know if I could do it. I didn't know, um, you know, if I would have all the tools necessary, but I knew that's what I wanted. And I knew that there was a, a strategy to get me there. And so that's where patient work, patience works because I'm putting the, the metaphor I use all the time is one foot in front of the other, which implies movement and that, and a, a forward directional sense of change happening. So I think as long as there's a movement towards change, I can feel a little bit more patient. When I feel like a stuck entrenchment, when, when, there's, when there is you know, a wall that I find myself up against, I think that's when I start getting like that internal bubbling or frustration and anger. Um, but I think even like just using the wall metaphor one more time, I think a lot about, about what it means to bump up against a wall. And I think maybe this is where patience comes as well. It's not useful. It's not productive and it just hurts. And I've been there, right? I've been, I've been like bumping up against a wall, you know, maybe when, uh, I, I wasn't allowed to enter a, a, a existing program. And I think that like you could just keep bumping up against the wall and getting bruised or you figure a way around, you climb the wall, you go around the wall, you dig a hole under the wall, like you just figure out how to get past the wall. And I feel like my, I don't know, sense, I don't know where that sense of tenacity comes from, but I, I don't want like a wall to stop me doing anything. I'm just going to sort of like, plow through it. That's very Tina Fey of you. She does like an over under through metaphor for her career. Like unless the thing blocking her is the person who's like her boss and paying her check, then like she doesn't care and she will go around. Which kind of leads me to my next question, which is, do you think- I don't really understand no. Like if somebody says no, I'll hear, okay, I understand what you're saying, (laughs) but let's like re-examine this again. (laughs) Do you think it helped during that like that really difficult time that while the media frenzy was kind of happening, you had your job and your work and you could focus on that instead of listening to what was happening around you? Yeah, I think that that during the media frenzy of the title debacle and firestorm, I think these are the things that help. Number one is I felt like I had an immediate support system. So having a supportive family and spouse who really uh, had my back and gave me an outlet just to be me was essential. Number two, just one concentric circle out from that was having a, a base from within my community. And I would say that that took work. In other words, my community, I think, struggled initially with being a sense, the center of a firestorm. And they also didn't want to, to lose money or, you know, be accused of not being orthodox. But once they rallied behind me and, and came around to support Rabbi Weiss and the evolution forward, 
um, that really grounded me and allowed me just to keep my head down and keep working and keep doing the job. Um, also for me, it was, it's not a job, right? It's people, it's relationships. It's, it's, it's people's lives that you're privileged to be part of. And I think people could, could understand that that was my desire, that that's why I was doing this work. Um, the third is, is Maharat was, had already started by the time that firestorm began. And so I also had to make sure that the students who are, you know, partners in courage really to take that leap to be the first amongst the first to come into such a new program and idea. And my students continue to be courageous and brave trendsetters in so many ways. Um, they, I, I needed to make sure that they were going to be okay. And, and the choices of title were, were not going to negatively impact their ability to find jobs or their lives. And I think once I had that core, that middle, that, that sort of protective embrace of my immediate family, my community and Maharat, my stakeholders, so to speak, supporting me, um, everything else just rolled off my back. Um, I think if I could point to what some of the more painful moments were, it was when the people who were close to me, who I expected and thought would support what I was doing, um, it was when they asked questions and they were not as supportive as I hoped they would be. Uh, that, that was more painful. It's always, always your family, <laughs> going back to that metaphor, that um, when they question you, it's much more painful than when outsiders do. One of the things I've seen so much over the course of my own rabbinic work is that religion brings up something very personal in people that's almost not rational or controllable. People take religious matters far more seriously than other matters and are willing to fight on something that isn't actually even part of their practice or hashkafa. One of the areas I've seen this the most is with title. Many people over the years have felt very passionately about what a title should or should not be for a woman who is ordained. Recently, I was speaking to a graduate and I asked her if she had to choose a different title for herself or if she had to go through this process again of choosing a title, what title she would choose. And I was shocked when she told me that she would only choose a title that had an RB sounding name. This includes Rabbah, Rabbanit, Rabbi. And I found this to be so interesting coming from the first cohort. In the first cohort, many of us went by Maharat, Moratenu. There were not many graduates who immediately took the title Rabbah or Rabbanit when they graduated. And now the conversation and reality is just so different. There are so many RB-sounding titles and almost no one with the title of Maharat or Moratenu. I wanted Rabasara to reflect on this and ask her what she thinks that shift is due to. I think the shift in title is just a evolution of acceptance. I think that Maharat, we knew that we had to invest our time and energy into the degree of ordination. And we wanted to get out of the title game. But that's not to say that I don't think title obviously is important. And also I didn't have a dream. I, I, I completely had a dream about everybody having the same title. Um, but I think that in our 12th year now, in our bat mitzvah year, we have succeeded in just becoming part of the 
fabric of what the community is made up of. And I think that the confidence of our students to, to take titles is really coming from the expectation of what, how the community sees us and what they want to call their religious leaders. Uh, and I think that that's an example of, of patience. <laughs> and and um, I think that if we had pushed forward with rabbi at the beginning, as much as we had, some of us had wanted to, or even rabbah, I think it would have shut out a lot of potential students and, and hiring institutions from accepting women. And I think now that there are just more people and more women and more congregants and more synagogues and just more jobs in general, even outside of the pulpit world, who uh, who look to Maharat as religious leaders, it's, it, it almost matters less what we're called. And so uh, it's, it's a natural evolution. You know, I remember, you're just reminding me, I was on a panel once and it was, it was not a fun, it was not a good panel. <laughs> I was by far the youngest on the panel and I was just, um, it was in DC and it was uh, in Rabbi Frindel's shul and his wife at the time was the moderator and Rabbi Sperber was there, so to speak, like on my team, but everybody else on the panel were the opposite of friends. And I was on the defensive the whole time. And I, one of the things that came up a lot is you're starting a revolution. And, you know, maybe, maybe for some, this feels like a revolution, but that's when I realized that this is just a natural evolution to an inevitable reality that like the history is on the side of, of women taking leadership roles and taking the knowledge that they have and using it to serve the Jewish people and to be in positions of leadership. And that was just like, I guess like having the vision to know that that evolution was gonna happen. And it, it, it was never a revolution. It was just something that was inevitably gonna happen. I think I understood that. and. Um, that was like my biggest takeaway that I was able to share at that panel only when pushed to defend the fact that this is a revolution. And by the way, if it is a revolution, that's awesome. Also, you know, the world needs sometimes to be shook up and, and um, you know, big changes come out of a ability to re-envision what could be. I think also, just at some point it becomes exhausting for people to say this is a revolution and not an evolution because every single evolution has a revolutionary step. That's how evolution happens. Someone has to take a step forward. And I think to say like, this is a revolution. What are you doing? You need to let it evolve. Like it had evolved. GPATS existed. Yoatzet existed. And they were both you know, kind of thriving at that point. And so this is the obvious next step. It what it didn't even skip a few steps. It it just progressed and it was just the next step. And it, it always shocked, you know, it always just, just struck me as really funny when people say like, this isn't this isn't an evolution, this is a revolution. But like that's how an evolution works. It has to just keep going. I want to talk about the times that it's been hard to have this patience and maintain this calm. I want to also dispel my sort of outward sense of patience. I think I can hold on to that public 
I don't know, sense of serenity, which, which is there because I spent a lot of time behind closed doors, like just yelling. <laughs> and I'm grateful to, you know, my, my internal circle that they can let me sort of yell about whatever topic it is. And, and sometimes it's actually helpful to yell about the topic publicly also. And so there are moments where I do that as well. But there was a moment I remember so angry, right? It's just, it was about, do women belong? That was the basic topic. Do women belong? Well, obviously women belong. And the fact that men weren't ready and whatever the context was for us not to belong was just infuriating. And I remember sitting in the room, I was one of maybe three women in that room with, let's say, I don't know, over a hundred men. And they were voting and determining like whether I belonged in that room. And I was already in the room. I was already at the table. And it was infuriating. And I, um, I, I, like, I call it my pedestal. I got on my pedestal, which is sometimes good. It's a good pedestal. And, and I like, will passionately say what I believe. And sometimes it just feels a little bit like screeching in somebody's ears. And I think that was a moment where I was so upset and angry that I ended up probably being um, less articulate than I had hoped to be because I was just so furious. And, and that came out, you know, that where your mouth like is trying to not allow you to cry. <laughs> and I just, I remember that, like that quivering of the lip so to speak. Um, Did they I, vote you not, this is, I'm not going to say what this was, but it sounds like they voted for you not to be in the room. And Right. And so I look back on that, that impassioned speech, which was not successful. And for that year, uh, the vote did not go my way. Um, I was told it was by two votes, et cetera, et cetera. But, and I look back and I sort of regret it. I sort of regret it, but I also know that it needed to lay the groundwork to what happened next. And it, it took another year, maybe, I don't remember exactly. It took another year or two years for, for women to be accepted into that particular space. And I would like to, I, I don't think anybody would point to that like <laughs> sort of embarrassing moment, but I do think that it shook some people and, and that's where anger does play a good role. Like sometimes you, you need anger to wake people up. You know, this is, this is Belda, Belda Linda Mel, right? Like that, what, that's what, the, you, do you know the famous story where Rabbi Weiss, I believe was on a panel at one of the early Jofa conferences and he uh, was speaking uh, on, on this topic and Belda Linda Mel, oh, Shalom. I miss her. She stood up and she asked him a very angry sounding question and very forthright. And uh, Rabbi Weiss sort of said, you know, Belda, you don't have to be so angry as a introduction to whatever his answer may have been. And Belda says, I, I am angry. I have a right to be angry. And you know what? You should be more angry. And what a moment because she was 100% right. Like there is a, a, a place for rage and for anger. It's, it's not yet yeah, scary for some people, but we need to sometimes be woken up to, to how the world can and should be better. And it takes some people to um, use sort of an angry tone to wake people up. 
even if there's a bristling and a pushing against it at the moment it's happening, I believe that like when everybody calms down and the dust settles from whatever that moment is, uh, that it, it, there's an opening that there, it creates a, a, you know, a light into what will be. The, the patient, to me, the patience in that story is not, it's not that moment where you chose to get up and show people how you felt. It's the fact that you continued to come back to that space until not only was there room for you, but there was room for your What's wrong with me? <laughs> but, okay, maybe it's grace, maybe it's patience, maybe it's being able to have some sort of like nivua in the future that like it's gonna be worth it because at the end of the day, it's important and it's a checking of your own feelings for a greater good. Yes. So I, I, I don't, I still don't know how you do it. Whatever we're going to call it, the fact that you went back to that space and you not only, you know, brought a folding chair and said, I'm sitting at this table, you made space for your students who now are very largely in that space, very vocally in that space um, and, and leaders in that space. Um, to me, that's where the grace is, is that like, you don't burn bridges, you let things settle and then you revisit them, which is, I really think a very unique strength. And when I say you're patient, I don't mean like you're idle, you never get upset. I mean, you have this really special perspective where you're able to see things for what they are in the moment, take a minute and see the importance of it in the future and kind of keep your eye on the prize. Um, to me, that's, that is, that's the skill. And, and that's, I think, I'm sure we can, we all need to learn from it because I don't have that. I don't have that. I think I rely on you for it. <laughs> but so I think that you, you, I mean, I couldn't have even articulated better. It, it is exactly what happens. In other words, I, I keep coming back because I know that it's, that the future is just better with me chipping away at the future I want to see. And, and that uh, even though it's going to be a battle, I just know it's a battle that must be won, but it takes a toll. And I think that if I could think about, um, there are times where you, you actually just have to <laughs> let things be and not battle some things. And, you know, I can think about some examples, but, but then there are other times where I stay in. And I think what helps me stay in is humor, <laughs> which I don't have. <laughs> I, mean, I think I have a little bit of a sense of humor, but thank God I'm surrounded by other people who do. And that really helps. It helps. It helps. Uh, me not take myself so seriously because I get very serious as you can probably tell and uh, Josh's I think greatest attribute is just putting a pin in anything um, you know so for example Rami I think you know this he has a, a list of words that he thinks like we rabbis use and and we do we talk about Based. in the space <laughs> we uh, you know, I want to bring everybody together and we have cohorts and we, we have a divine spirit and we, <laughs> we, what, 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 what? process. Oh, we have process. Absolutely. Loves that one. And he pokes fun at it. And, and it just allows me to be a little bit light about the way in which I'm going about my work. Um, because, 
you know, even if I'm standing in the pulpit and having a serious moment in my head, I have his voice and um, in my head sort of like letting me know that not everything needs to be so serious. And, and that helps. When we were, we were honored at the HIR dinner and there's a YouTube video somewhere floating around of his, his remarks. And he is not, I mean, he's an amazing public speaker, but he doesn't like it. He doesn't like being in the public light. And so the fact that he was speaking was a big deal and he would not show me his remarks beforehand. And so you have to imagine this, we're up there together, um, standing next to each other. And I just gave this like overly formal <laughs> talk and, you know, thank you, gratitude, lots of Tara, I'm sure. And <laughs> he gets up. And he says, um, I just want to thank you for allowing me to be the head of the first ever um, Rebbitson Council of America, or to be the first Rebbitson Council of America. And it was so like surprising <laughs> what he was saying that, I mean, everybody was laughing on the floor and I'm up there like trying to like compose myself and just cracking up at the ludicrousness of what he was saying. It was hilarious. I want to end by asking how she tries to instill these values of patience, grace, and foresight into her children. Wow. How do I try to teach this value of patience? I think First of all, I think it is a lot of modeling. Um, I think it comes with maturity. I don't think that like kids are designed to be patient <laughs> when they're young. I don't know. I am. I, I love. I love our Friday night dinners, and I think that's where a lot of of like laughter and wisdom comes out. Um, and it's it's really just by trying to bring ourselves to whatever conversation we're having and, and telling stories about ourselves or, and, and they, they make fun of me the most. <laughs> I mean, that they poke fun of me, poke fun of me all the time. And, and it's okay. Like, I, I think it's healthy and good because I, I think it's important for me not to take myself so seriously. And um, I don't know. I mean, I, I think like most, mostly I want them to come at this with a lot of choice and, love going back to where we started that I, I want them to feel like they're choosing something um, and not that it's being thrown down you know forced down their throats um, and so we try to create a, a culture of of like you know in our home that there there's a lot of love around Judaism it doesn't have to be one of fear but I don't know how to answer your question about patience because I think it's it's not a value that you can teach. I don't know how do how do you think I should teach it? Meaning I, as a student I, at Maharat, I'm like, about a parent, I I'm barely a parent. But even as like a student at Maharat, like was it something that you you? Um. So I think again, I think I I think I saw it a lot more when we were colleagues than when when I was a student and you were the dean. Part of it is just because the student dean relationship was like kind of like a parent child relationship and that there was, you know, like when a, a child is hurting, the parent hurts at least just as much. And I think, I think you in, in a lot of ways, because we weren't that first concentric circle 
for you, even though we were in the yeshiva. Um, there's a lot of like pain we didn't see and there were a lot of challenges we didn't know about. And so it's hard to see the foresight when you don't know exactly what the challenge is. You know what I mean? Like, I think if I were, if I were, my perspective as a student was like, you just don't let things shake you and, you know, you move forward and you have your story and you stick to your story and it's about the work, it's about the work, it's about the work. But as your colleague, I saw, you know, I saw you come into that room, get upset, but then take a breath and have this profound foresight and just be able to ground everyone around you and see a bigger picture. And maybe that also comes with maturity. I mean, I was like 21 when I started Maharat. So like, I obviously wasn't very mature, but you know, it takes maturity to have perspective. And I think it takes maturity to see perspective. And I maybe just needed a different vantage point to see the bigger picture of you seeing the bigger picture. Yeah, totally. Watching you work. I feel this way about you and I feel this way about Blue. Like the other day I was talking to Blue in um, fellowship for Aguna's things. And so everyone was introducing themselves and I said like, yeah, I work with Aguno. And then I, I just always feel like such a fraud saying what I do in front of Blue. <laughs> because like, I know every single privilege I have comes from her. I know that she's fought so hard. But I feel like that with you too, that like, Anytime we have a challenge, you had that challenge, but you had it alone. And if you can sort it out and you can work through it, how could we not feel that way? And so part of it really is just modeling it, maybe modeling it. But like, from my perspective, like looking up to you saying, how can I have that? How can I have that perspective? How can I, you know, keep going? It is true that I'm the mother of four boys and there's definitely an irony in that. And they are all so different. And I think that they just have to find their own way. Uh, I think Josh and I have different perspectives on the world and that comes out in our lively conversations. And so I think they're given the message that they also can find their own way. Um, I, I do come down hard on them when they don't agree with me because obviously my way is the right way. And if they are, you know, like mean to a, a girl and make fun of a girl, I'm going to yell at them like anything. Um, but I think that at the end of the day, know that they have the space to f- like form into their own beings. Um, I think they have a sense of a direction that I clearly want them to go in, but I think they they're figuring it out themselves. And also as a parent, stepping back and giving them the space to do that is really important. Um, yeah. Okay, what about the, like, Maharaj? I think I'll say, I'll say, wait, what, what? About, like, like the Maharat part of the question. Like, how does this affect, you think, how they see women? Yeah, I, I mean, I guess that's always a, a different... Um, yeah, I remember when when some of my children were in middle school, they said to me, you know, the girls have all of the opportunities. You know, girls get priority for everything. They get called on in school. They're closer to the teachers. They're more of the teacher's pets. And you know what happened? When the bus broke down twice on school trips, the boys had to wait behind and, and wait you know, three hours for the bus to come and the girls got to go right away in the bus. And there were like, 
I think one of them was angry about that. And I watched their formation of like turning into chauvinist pigs happen. I, I, it was also an opportunity to um, like give them different perspectives of the fact that actually the boys have all of the mitzvot and the boys have all of the opportunities beginning in eighth grade and ninth grade and 10th grade. And that the priorities given to girls are, are so minor and necessary in their formation. Um, and so I think that, that they, I, I think that we're trying to help them understand um, that, that girls don't, in, in, don't have it easy in the Orthodox world. And, um, and I think that they, they are actually inherent feminists because they just like drink the water. But I think at different phases of their growth and their trajectory, they're gonna push against it at different times. I want to say one final thing, which is that I was um, told at a certain point in my evolution of like towards leadership that I should be more aggressive and I should be more forthright. And I remember trying and then I realized I just need to be me. And if, if, if somebody is looking for like, there are moments to be more aggressive, but it was around fundraising. Like when you're sitting in a funder, like be more aggressive. And I, I don't, I feel like I needed to be, I need to just be me. And whatever me is, is I think what comes out. Thank you so much for joining us this episode and for tuning in throughout the whole first season of the Maharat cast. This has been an incredible journey to host and produce for you. If you haven't already heard the other episodes in the season, I highly encourage you to listen to them and get to know a little bit more about the people behind the leaders of Yeshivat Maharat. As always, we would love to hear from you and we would love to bring you more content. Please reach out to us via email at maharatcast at yeshivatmaharat.org. That's M-A-H-A-R-A-T-C-A-S-T at yeshivatmaharat.org.